Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 13 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about 1992's Batman Returns. This is the follow-up Batman movie to Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, featuring Michael Keaton as Batman. Uh, Keaton and Burton are back, baby! And, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, all of Tim Burton's works have a Christmas aspect to them, I feel like, or a lot of them do. Beetlejuice... uh, well, not Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> You're like, Beetlejuice, not Beetlejuice. Not Beetlejuice. <laughs> Edward Scissorhands. Uh, I think the first Batman also takes place during Christmas time, maybe, or in the wintry time, I feel like. Uh, but uh, obviously, <laughs> wintry time. <laughs> uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas, obviously, which is not a Tim Burton directed, but Tim Burton story. Uh, yeah, Batman Returns, the unsung Batman in the Batman series. This is this is one that does not get nearly enough love, I think, from people. You don't? I think it did over the years. It did. So, like, when you and I were young ones, I would say that this got a lot of play. I mean, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, you know, Danny DeVito as the Penguin. I mean, I, I remember this vividly on mall posters. Oh, I was hyped for this movie. I I, I, I am bad with remembering movie posters in general, uh, yeah. theatrical posters. This one has forever stuck in my mind. The uh, Michael Keaton's head on top of Michelle Pfeiffer on top of Danny DeVito's Penguin. And then it's saying, you know, the bat, the cat, and the penguin. And yeah. emblazoned in my memory, you know, the otherwise black. <laughs> Black background. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw this in theaters at least twice that I can remember. Same. And I was too young to go see Batman in the original Batman in 89. I, was, I think I was too young to go see that in the theaters. Yeah, this one, 92. I'm 14. I was right in that sweet spot for, for some PG-13 Batman butt-kicking <laughs> action. Same. This was this was right in my wheelhouse. This is definitely something I saw with my friends multiple times. It has a different feel than today's Batmans, if you will. There's definitely a more, I'm going to say, like, cartoony and... I don't kind of relaxed, if you will, more playful version of a Batman movie. I have sat through recently Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman, and all of the the Batman movies recently. And I feel really, really good about this one in terms of like this one was fun. You know, it just was fun. It was, it, you know, one, I don't think anyone, no one makes a movie quite like Tim Burton makes a movie. And I, I think that he's kind of his own institution on, on its own. It, this is, he has, he has such a style. If you blindfolded me, uh, you know, and then removed the blindfold in the middle of a movie with no other context, I'm pretty sure I could tell you if it was a Tim Burton movie or not. Certainly the Batman, his two Batman movies 
are very Burton-esque. The the shadow, the the big sets, the you know, the very tangible sets, the weird characters, the orphans. You know, there's so much in common with this movie and and Edward Scissorhands. The the orphan who has no one, that's Oswald Cobblepot, that's the penguin. I mean, that's Batman. He's the orphan of all orphans. Uh Batman is. And you know, Edward Scissorhand losing his father early on and and being kind of raised, you know, alone. It's a really distinctive kind of Batman movie. It's a very distinctive kind of superhero movie. They don't make them like like this. The absurdity of the things that he has. Like, I I mean, that that uh, duck that the penguin rides around and that thing is like iconic. You know, when I see it, it says Burton and it says Batman returns to me like I'm like, I know that duck. I made Tom watch this with me and he was really hung up on the duck. No, he was like, why is there a duck? He's like, what is the, what's, what does the duck mean? It's a penguin in this big rubber ducky like thing. And I said, Tom, because that's Tim Burton, man. And I can answer that for him or I will try. I think it's a rested development of the penguin that he is like still kind of playing in the water with a rubber ducky. Like he's, he's just still in this immature, hasn't grown past being a small child, basically, and and completely blame his parents. His mind is warped, you know? For sure. I I think we were going to probably end up spending (laughs) most of our episode talking about Danny DeVito and the Penguin. Because, and I should be on the record here straight away, Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman. Mine as well. He is my definitive Batman. Uh, Again, I was talking to Tom. I said, man, look at him. That is a Batman. (laughs) Middle-aged white dude with a dad bod, a receding hairline, and wonderful sarcasm. That's what I'm looking for in my Batman. He is me. He, I am Batman. (laughs) Do you know what's really important about him? You believe that he could be smart. Yes. And that is one that I just cannot abide by with Ben Affleck. Like, I'm sorry. I don't, he doesn't play smart to me. And I get a lot of heat about that. I have had multiple arguments about this, but Oh, Affleck is the worst Batman. (laughs) <laughs> he, he's hot trash Batman. Uh, only maybe worse is maybe George Clooney because and not because George Clooney is a bad a- actor. Uh, I don't think Ben Affleck is a bad actor. I just don't think they're Batman esque. But Clooney could be smart and he can yeah. certainly be suave. And I don't think of Affleck as either smart nor suave. Hmm. He's forever a frat boy in my head. I, I, get, I see wins. that. I, I think he's I think he is the worst Batman. I, I was <laughs> I was physically annoyed when he was announced as, as, to be cast as Batman in the Same. DCEU. Yeah. Uh, but but that's what I've come to expect from from DC and Warner Brothers when they're making their movies. They have three options and they pick the worst possible one and they run <laughs> full speed into it like in, like a like an idiot into a garage door. Oh, my gosh dramatic no pads no helmet just full speed worst decision they can possibly make i i don't know how you have christian bale uh, do such a capable job as batman for three films and your thought is you know where we need to pivot to before we get to <laughs> before we give it to our pat first we're going to take a stop oh, with the R pat in, in, into ben affleck that's the right call of all of the men in Hollywood. And again, going back, though, like really with Robert Pattinson? No, thank you. Like, I don't. We're, same girl. Same. Suave, smart. No, Mm-mm, no, no. Robert, no. And no. Listen, I, I you know I really liked, you know, Robert Pattinson <laughs> in Goblet of Fire. 
you know, Cedric Diggory, you know, I, I, I'm a fan. And he works for all of the Twilight. The, the Twilight movies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a pasty vampire who has is, teenage angst. You know, angsty oh, yeah. vampire angsty. suits him. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, I, well, listen, I'm reserving judgment on the Batman and, and our Pat. I've actually heard good things, you know, coming out about his performance that people are going to be very surprised. And really? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that I it's going to hand him up a little. It's going to be. well. <laughs> I don't need a sickly Batman. Yeah, so I've heard good things, so I'm trying to reserve my judgment. But Ben Affleck mm, is just I've such a—he's such a bad taste in my mouth. And again, I was—I was against it, like I have any power or say. But I—I mm. I still went in because I wanted to like. I like superhero movies, so I want to enjoy a superhero movie. I do everything I possibly can to enjoy a superhero movie. Man, he was just disappointing, and I could not wait. I, I, I just could not wait for him to be off the screen. Uh, but <laughs> Michael Keaton, though, again, doesn't actually have a lot to do in this movie. He is much more reactionary than the moving force. And back force. on his heels a lot. You know, not just reactionary, but like also like always shocked at like, what the... You know, his whole thing with Catwoman, he was just like boggled by her. Yes. So here's the thing. So I, I like what you said about Michael Keaton plays a smart Batman. You you, you believe in he's got the eyebrow. There's a brain going on <laughs> yes. behind his eyes. But he also has a vulnerability, which is always something nice to see in a Batman. You know, I like that he falls in love so easily with Vicky Vale in the first one and, and here with Selena Kyle. But at the same time. How could you not fall in love with Michelle Pfeiffer playing Catwoman here? And I know you think my fetish here is going to be Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman in the skin tight suit. For me, it's Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena that just intoxicated and ensorcelled me every time she was on the screen. You know, she's she's playing well, the dork sexy and then the sexy sexy, both of them very well. But it's the dork sexy that gets to me, though. The very curly hair that's forever having to be blown out of her face, you know, just always being kind of disheveled and a little confused. But then when she kind of is a little confused, when, when she, but when she's like uh, converted, when she has her fall, when uh, Shrek pushes yeah. her, uh, mm-hmm. then she is still confused but also kind of wicked and and there's this other aspect to her charm uh, a, a real acidity that kicks in it's i mean not to use a cat pun but she's catnip here for me I, really everything she's doing here really really works and i think holds up really well this is a third a 29 year old movie a lot of this still worked really really well for me her performance in particular felt very fresh really 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 into it when I was like, you know, we talked about like 13, 14, when I would have saw, seen this movie, I felt very much like she was just cool. Like I wasn't paying attention to her sexuality necessarily. And I know she's wearing, you know, head to toe leather, but I just felt like, you know, she was someone who was going to get revenge. She was going to stand up to a man and she was going to fight, you know, amongst the other men, which, you know, again, thinking back, you know, we don't get to see that a lot. We do now, but it's 2021. So back then I didn't have a lot of female superheroes and I don't generally talk about representation. I am not always looking for, for a woman to be on the screen, but in this particular case, this was one of the first times I might've seen certainly a villain 
who was female and was really doing a great job. I don't, I want to say a swear, so I'm going to not, but I just felt like she, she was competent Mm -hmm. and clever and she was figuring out her way, you know, and, and willing to do things that were pretty wild, you know, kind of insane, but cool. You know, I looked at her leather, like I, I was a fan of Greece too. I was looking at her leather more in that bad Sandy kind of way. There was something to it just as a teenage girl that I was like, "Mm, you are like the painting over the pink with the black. I mean, I was like prime time for that. I was literally changing out like my bedding for like black bedding. I've seen this movie multiple times, but I haven't probably seen it in 20 plus years. It's been a long time since I've seen this whole thing all the way through. And I was thinking, why is she spray painting her clothes black? Like where, what's Mm. the point of the spray paint? But then I, then I realized it's just rebelling. She's just had enough of getting sand kicked in her face she's had enough of the max shreks in the world it's the sweet sandy to the you know but especially in in this lens i mean think of it in the 2021 post me Too world this is what women in hollywood and women everywhere have been trying to do and been doing the last few years right when she says to Batman, when Catwoman says to Batman, you're the second man to try to kill me, or you're the second man to kill me this week, but don't worry, mm-hmm. I've got seven lives left. Like, that's a badass line. You know, she's like, I've had enough of your testosterone nonsense, you Batman and you Max Shrek, and then you uh, Penguin, you disgust me, even though we had a common goal there for a while. She's just had enough, and she's just going to go do it for herself. I love that. I love that message. I loved it in 1992. I loved it now. I mean, you know, it's still problematic as we, you know, look at it in 2021. I mean, she's using her sexuality versus her brain or or her skills, but she does have smart moments. You know, she's the one that figures out everything with the power plan. And she's the one that, you know, has questions and wants to speak up in the meeting. That should be applauded and should be pointed out that she isn't just this one dimensional doing cartwheels, in my opinion, Harley Quinn type character. She is smarter than that. She is really trying to figure out the mystery, if you will, of what the bad guys are doing. She is smart. She does use her brain throughout the movie. She is the brains that moves this movie. I mean, she, you know, she she makes a lot of the connections happen. She's the one who does the heroic thing with Max Shrek and the taser at the end of the movie. But I would say I don't think she's using her sexuality to forward her agenda. I think she is sexual. Can you hear my face right now? You have to be hearing my face right now. Meow. Come on. <laughs> Did you hear what I said though? But I'm not yeah, saying I heard she's, you said. she's a she's being she she's allowing her sexual side to be awoken versus having to be a spinstress cat woman in a pejorative sense. Uh, who who just has a cat who, by the way, the, her cat could pass as like the grandmother for my cat. So that mm-hmm. made my heart sing very much. That's funny. Yeah. B- pure black cat with the green eyes. Like that's what Elvira looks like. So just age wise, she could be Elvira's grandma. Uh, yeah, I, I think she goes from that. I think her transformation to Catwoman isn't mean that she begins using her. I don't think she's using her sexuality to further her agenda. I think she's using her brain. I think she is just allowed her sexual side to be awoken. And I think that's different, though. The, the same way that men are allowed to, you know, flaunt their machismo i think she's taken her sexuality for a lap here i think she licked her hands her at the back of her hands and licked things like 
You sure? I mean, I... But how I, does that further her agenda versus just her... Because she was getting the men to do what they wanted, what she wanted them to do. Instead of, in the case of Shrek, say, she wasn't doing that with him. She at no point tried to seduce him. But she sure. absolutely was playing that card with both Batman and the Penguin. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the best, I think one of the best examples of that maybe is in the department store where the two, like, you know, fat security guards come up and they're like, hey, what are you doing there, lady? You know, and she, and then she kind of gives like a little sass line. Uh, they like drop their guard. And so she whips, she whips them into submission literally and says, you know, stop thinking with your groins or something like that. I, I, okay. Maybe so that's weaponizing her sexuality a little bit which is fine i'm not hey you know that's a perfectly good thing because you're right bruce wayne is he seduces women you know i mean he he walks around you know his dinner parties and cocktail parties and whatnot and he absolutely is being suave and and trying to get their interest in his various ways most of the time by being smart though most of the time talking about his travels and things like that but you know he does you know want to look the part, if you will, and she's in the same kind of, you know, vein. Oh, for sure. I- I'm just trying to think of, I have such a poor recollection of the Halle Berry Catwoman standalone film that came out in, what, 2004, 2009, something like that. I And I, I, I want to say that that version of Catwoman uses a much more weaponized sexuality and less brain power than well, this, this was does. a more cartoony version of everybody well sure so for sure. i think that this isn't this isn't so overt because she's still a little bit of a cartoon drawing version where holly berry you know she's just she is just full-on you know there there isn't any there isn't any like childishness about her playfulness I mean, she, there's a real there's a playfulness in in with, yeah with michelle it, pfeiffer for sure yeah. There, I, and but, she is yeah. beautiful. Her little trans transition from being her secretary. She was beautiful as the secretary and she's beautiful as Catwoman. I think she does a great job. It was funny to me to see her doing things like cartwheels. I was like, oh, this is this is uh, such a such a small version compared to watching like Wonder Woman last week, you know, and like seeing all the stunts that they do now. I, you know, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, that's kind of funny in her her doing the the cartwheel out of Shrek's department store all the mm-hmm. way across the street. And I love the lingering shot. Like we just sit there and watch her do it, which is again, men would stop and watch the woman in the skin type black suit do seven cartwheels with no other action going on on the screen for her to turn around and say, meow. And then the, the store to explode. I love that scene. It made me laugh. It was, it, it did exactly what I think Burton wanted it to do. You know, like, Oh, don't underestimate this woman. She may blow you up, but I, I also was thinking after I read about the film, the, you know, once they put her into this skin tight suit, they would then like vacuum seal her in. And the idea, like she could only say a few lines at a time because she was always on the verge of passing out the entire shoot. That seems insane, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And that's part of why I don't think she's as sexy in the suit as she is out of the suit. Okay, I'm going to take a different take on it. So so regardless of who it works for or not, I think it's crazy to put a superhero or a villain in an outfit where they can't even breathe. And the fact that it's a woman is like, this is silliness. I mean, look at what the rest of the people are wearing around her. I mean, yeah. Danny DeVito is literally wearing like a version of long underwear. Well, he was in multiple. I mean, he had, I think, in a lot of ways, the he worst. Had a lot that, of coats and weird stuff. Well, he had like he three hours sure. of makeup apply of application every day. Like he was in a Absolutely. trip. Really, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and he was super gruesome. Like we. We should mm-hmm. definitely talk about his look because, yeah. ooh, 
gross. It, and you know, it was funny, Michael Keaton coming back for Batman. It, it's funny, it, Burton and Keaton did not want to return to Batman. They both felt Ooh. that the story had been told. In Burton's case, he was lured back because the studio wanting lightning to strike twice because Batman unexpectedly turned into such a mega hit, mm-hmm. told him he could have a lot more creative control. And that's what got Burton back for Michael Keaton. It was a massive pay bump. I think he made like 10 or $11 million to come back and play in this movie. And again, has a lot less to do in this than he does in the first Batman, but made oodles more cash over it though. He had one of his demands for returning was that he had a fly, a zipper added to his bat suit because otherwise there was there was no easy way for him to go to the bathroom in the yeah. original suit, uh, so he had a, he had a uh, zipper added. Michelle Pfeiffer had one break a day for her to go to the bathroom. She was allowed out of the suit to, and then was able to go to the bathroom, but otherwise for the entire day was in that suit. That's insane. That's, that's, that's insane and unnecessary. Yeah. But you see it. I mean, in, but, you know, it's funny. In today's world, they would probably just digitally alter how she looked and she wouldn't have to go through that. Or she could be great as she is as a of human. Of course, and I'm saying if they were fine. going for if they were going for the unrealistic photo, the unrealistic uh, comic book look, right? Yeah. Because comic books are always drawn in an, in an extreme way that don't quite match on a one-to-one basis human bodies whether you're too thin or you're too jacked or whatever it is cart you know comic books are notorious for not drawing human bodies exactly how they actually appear and this they were going for a very this is exactly what she looks like in in the comic book kind of feel for to to her detriment it's kind of weird i don't know if you read this uh annette benning was actually hired to play her so i'll I'll talk about sean young in a second so if not for annette benning becoming pregnant which forced her out of the movie we would have back Batman Returns with Annette Benning, which is weird to me because I don't know. I just don't think of Annette Benning as a Catwoman type. No, nothing about her screams femme fatale, Catwoman esque kind of foil. I feel like she could do that side of it, but I don't see her doing cartwheels and I don't see her having sort of that more crawling along the ground kind of feel. She could do the part where she's just sassing and you know being smart and doing various little tricky moves behind the men's back i think she could handle that but i do not see her believably doing any acrobatics my recall on sean young because i remember sean young from when these movies were being made i was not a kid who you know i was in high school i guess when i had just started i was about to start high school when this came out so i read the paper periodically if i accidentally went too far forward from the sports and cartoon section in the in the tv news part i remember sean young maybe having some kind of mental breakdown over trying to get this role that it she was so upset that she was not being considered for it that she showed up at several different casting offices uh, and studio offices related to Warner Brothers in a homemade Catwoman suit demanding to get an audition for the role. Oh and there, there are there are <laughs> pictures out there which I came across in getting ready for this of her in her homemade Catwoman suit. Homemade Catwoman suit. <laughs> she was walking around LA in a Catwoman suit, trying to find the right person to speak to to like oh, wow. posi- you know position herself for for an audition for the role. I remember it spiraling out, and people were like, "We're worried about Sean Young." <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Young, kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> homemade Catwoman suit is all I have to hear. It, it's to funny. Be like what? 
Uh, Meryl Streep was up for this role a little bit, but I guess Burton deemed that she was too old, even at that point in 1982. Now, Death Becomes Her, Meryl Streep is looking, I think, fantastic, if I remember, and that hadn't yet come out at this point, and I think she looks great. So maybe she can't not doing cartwheels young, but to say she was too old seems maybe a little unfair to Miss Streep. But Nicole Kimmon was also considered a little bit for this role. I can see her doing it. Well, she ends up because she doesn't get this one, she ends up being the the female lead in the next Batman movie when Joel Schumacher takes over the Batman Forever, which is, I think, the Val Kilmer. It's the start of Nipples Batman. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Batman Forever. That's the first, That's the one with, like, Jim Carrey uh, and, I think, Tommy Lee Jones. About, uh, yeah, Jim Carrey playing, Yeah, playing uh, Jim Carrey playing the Riddler and Tommy Lee Jones playing Harvey Dent Two-Face. Yeah, she plays uh, Dr. Chase Meridian, I think, is who she plays. So she gets into the Batman movies once Schumacher takes over uh, after this one. But, uh, yeah, doesn't make it in this one. But, yeah, I think Michelle Pfeiffer is just so kind of iconic. At the same way, I think Kim Basinger, you know, remained kind of iconic as the Vicky Vale character oh, yeah. in the first one you know they really set a scale a, a tone that i think Halle berry fails to live up to that uh who's the one from dawson's creek who who takes over oh katie holmes yeah katie holmes when she comes over she i think she was she's in the first uh nolan movie she's like the female either in there and then i think anne hathaway takes a stab at selena kyle catwoman so i remember this movie pretty fondly and watching it again i remembered why now I think the question is, is this a Christmas movie? I think I got to say no. No, I think I got to say no, too. Uh, I think there's a devil's advocate argument to be made there. But uh, tell me why you what what's failing on the Christmas movie meter for you? I don't really think it has anything to do with Christmas. All the things that we talked about, belief, hope, you know, having some sort of sense of wonder or, you know, all the all the different parts that we've sort of identified as important to a Christmas movie. I don't think this has it. And and I understand that there's certain public events like the Christmas tree lighting that happen and, and that type of thing. But honestly, it could have been anything. It could have just been a press conference. You know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to have been a Christmas tree lighting. I think it was a stretch. I think that it's something that Tim Burton enjoys. You can add a lot of like flair to it, but it's not even like he really leaned into it. Like he chose to use like clowns and stuff with the penguin versus say elves, right? And say like, it's Christmas, you know, let's make them all little elves or something. Like he didn't do that. Like he, he kind of went this circusy theme when it came to the penguin and all of his little henchmen. I really didn't feel like, you know, the Christmas theme was there. What did you think? I don't think this is a Christmas movie because I agree with you. While there are Christmas elements that I think Tim Burton enjoys, I think he likes the I think he likes the Christmas season. We discussed this in Nightmare Before Christmas. I, I believe he likes holidays. He when he was inspired to write the Nightmare Before Christmas poem, he because he likes holidays in particular. He likes Halloween and he likes Christmas a lot. Uh, and so I think. It's a motif in his movies because he likes that time of the year and he likes the setting of it. But yeah, this could have been any time when the giant present comes and the red, you know, red triangle circus gang comes popping out and terrorizes the town square and the Christmas tree lighting. Those could have been anything. It didn't need to be yeah. Christmas on the themes. Uh, I mean, other than Batman 
at the end of the movie when he's sitting in the back of the car and Alfred's driving him home and they uh he said you know he kind of mumbles about Christmas huh the good you know season of goodwill towards men that's the only real lip service towards a Christmas theme in this so which is curious because this is one of the movies and the reason it's on this list is because this appears often on Christmas movie lists. There are movies like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. There's movies like Die Hard. And this one that often pop up on, you know, alternative Christmas movies or even on some mainstream best movie uh, Christmas movie lists all the time. So I've been I've been sitting here thinking about why. What is it? It can't be just that it takes place at Christmas. That that seems too thin, the the mere coincidence of it being at Christmas time. And I and I think you and I have discussed often that's not enough to make it a Christmas movie, right? So I, I was thinking about the the fact that this is a Christmas movie, maybe, by being the anti-Christmas movie. That if Christmas movies are dominated by the themes of goodwill towards men towards gathering your family and cherishing your time together by celebrating and and taking stock of your family and your loved ones and having faith in hope and joy and the the potential of peace on earth all of those kinds of themes this movie takes the opposite track in all of those ways and so it, there are no families in this movie. Batman is an orphan. His best friend is his butler, who has been his manservant since he was a child. Selina Kyle has no one. She has her cats. Penguin is literally thrown away by his parents. So so much so that the master plan of this movie is that Penguin is going biblical, uh, very Moses and and Old Testament God, and going to kill all of the first sons of Gotham. Uh, it literally killing, destroying families, tearing them apart. There is no goodwill towards men here. Max Shrek is is poisoning the environment uh in order to make money there you know there's a there's a strong corporate greed element to this movie no one is doing it for the public good they're doing it to uh get their own agenda selena's out for revenge penguin is out for revenge max is out to make money batman is just being batman you know i feel like he's just boggled that's why i said like he's just like always looking around like what is happening I, though I don't think they do a great job of talking about it. I, you know, he's he's still kind of bummed about Vicky Vale, who's disappeared, uh, you know, off screen in, in between movies. But I, I think his greatest arc in this is that he's interested for the first time in someone new in the form of Selena Kyle when he meets her in Max Shrek's office when she is pre-Catwoman changed uh, and is and is the secretary. I think he's he's like a smitten kitten, pun intended, uh, from that moment with her. But that's his arc in this movie. Like, he's doing the Batman thing because he does the Batman thing when the signal goes up. But it's the anti-Christmas themes movie, which there's a group of people out there. We've talked about this with Bad Santa. We've talked about this with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. The, there's a group of people who find comfort in contrarian views at this time of year and so i see from that point of view where this would be comfort food if you did not subscribe to the themes of christmas if you were angry or you were just in a in a position to feel opposite day about the christmas themes this movie is 
perfect for that because it is across the board the opposite, the anti every single Christmas theme explicitly in a way that Bad Santa is not, in a way that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is not. This movie is the opposite Christmas theme movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. That's my devil's advocate pitch for why this may be a Christmas movie. And when you say that, you mean it might be a movie that you could watch at Christmas time? Because I don't think it's a, I don't think that makes it a Christmas movie. I think it still just makes it a movie that you might turn on at the holidays. You might associate even with the holidays. Sure. I, I'm so far we haven't used that as a as a scale marker for us. Like, is this a movie you associate with the holidays? So does that make it a Christmas movie? And maybe that's something we need to consider on our list here as we're, I mean, we're only in week 13. Maybe we need to start considering, are there certain movies that people pull out this time of that Christmas time of year? It's not a Christmas movie in the sense of what we're talking about, belief and hope and change and good family. But and, yeah. maybe is it a Christmas movie if you associate it with Christmas time? So I'll put that out there that like we can noodle on that and decide whether it gets a higher mark. For for those that consider Bad Santa a Christmas movie, it's the Christmas movie for the people that uh, re- rebel or are repulsed by or just don't feel comfortable with the traditional Christmas values. But is only really appropriate to feel that at Christmas time because you're being you're being fed it by a steady stream of your miracles on 34th Street, your life's are wonderful, your Charlie Brown Christmas specials. That there's so much of that at that particular time of the year that you need a release valve. So you need to go find something that speaks to you that maybe in March or maybe in June, you don't need that release valve because you're not being fed the Christmas themes, but you know, once Thanksgiving hits and comes and goes and there's a steady stream of on CBS on NBC on ABC in the movie theaters, all of these Christmas movies, home alone, it's a a Christmas story playing on TNT and TBS 24 hours a day for three weeks. You need some kind of, I can't stand it anymore. Anymore. Maybe Batman Returns is your Christmas movie because it it is a bomb for your anti-Christmas feeling uh, wounds that you need to solve. OK, so then I, I'm willing to say that it's a movie associated with Christmas, but that's all it gets. I'm not I'm not giving it any higher than that because I hear everything you're saying. But why would you need to choose something that has a Christmas tree in it, period? It's not anti-Christmas. There's nothing in it where someone's like, we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas and blah, blah, blah. No, no, but it's anti-Christmas theme, though. It, it, it's, 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 How? How do you figure that? I mean, what is it? What is against Christmas? It's just they don't even talk about Christmas in it. You know, like it's just backdrop. It's just it's just set decoration. But it could have been anything. It could have been a birch tree. It could have been anything. It just happened to be a Christmas tree. But nobody's like mad at that. Nobody's like, we shouldn't have this Christmas tree. It's a Wonderful Life doesn't talk about Christmas. It just happens to take place at Christmas time. It's because of the themes that the movie is dealing with that makes it a Christmas movie. In the same way, this doesn't need to talk about Christmas when the themes it's a, when the themes that this movie is emphasizing and exploring are the anti-Christmas themes. Okay. Right? I, I mean, It's a Wonderful I mean, Life doesn't really ever talk about, it doesn't really make a big deal of the fact that it's at Christmas time. And I think we even talked about when we did that movie, you could have set It's a Wonderful Life at any time of the year and you'd still have the same movie. It's just that putting it at Christmas time heightens all of the feelings and the themes. And I, say, I think the same way here, you could you could 
set this movie at any time, but setting it at Christmas time heightens all of the negative feelings that some people have for the season. Okay. That that that's my pitch. I I don't subscribe to that. I don't think this is a Christmas movie. I think this movie has too much sexual uh innuendo. I think it I think Penguin is too horny by far and too gross by far, and I think this movie is too violent. There is so much killing and death in this movie. If Tom was any younger, and I had a better memory of this, I wouldn't have let him watch this. Maybe at, uh, obviously at 12 or 11, 10. But if he was eight, I'd have real pause in letting him watch this movie. I understood why this was PG-13. There was an original draft of the script that was actually going to get it an R rating. I believe it. I mean, the the thing is that we're used to in comic book movies, we're used to people dying and, and that's usually fine. They can do it in different ways. But this one had actual like blood. And for me, that like nose biting scene was like oh that's not comic book or superhero villain like you know push him down the stairs kind of thing that was like biting someone's nose <laughs> i mean that was really 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 disgusting and like gory horrible too real in a, like a really sick way yeah the violence is is so much more than i remember and, and much more severe i mean batman straps the giant comic you know cartoonish stick of dynamite to the strong man's chest and then you hear it blow up when he gets pushed down into the well uh the penguin biting the pr guy the hairstyle the makeover guy's nose and making the blood gush the 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 eating the the fish and the guts oh, and the so gross. and the and the black sludge that's coming out of his mouth the entire movie. But yeah. here are some of the lines from the very very horny penguin. He says, "I can teach her the French flipper trick. That's the biggest parasol I've ever seen. Unlimited poontang. Poontang is not a phrase that should be in a Christmas movie." Unlimited no. Poontang, certainly. I don't want to have to explain that to my... friendly podcast. I don't want to have to explain... Exactly. I don't want to have to explain that watching a, a quote-unquote Christmas movie to, to my kid. Yeah, you no. know? That's no. problematic for me. Yeah. For those reasons, this movie very much fails as a Christmas movie for me. Really questionable, you know, in some ways, kids of a certain age. I, you know, it's funny. I, I remember seeing R-rated movies regularly when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. I was definitely watching PG-13 movies well under the age of 13. I was raised like one of the kids in Lord of the Flies with no, with very little supervision. As a generation, I think we're more guarded of what our kids watch than our par- parents were maybe more than our parents maybe watched over us. But again, if Tom was a single digit, I would, I would be, it would be problematic for him to watch this movie, especially without me, if he just found it on cable, which shocked me, actually. It really actually took me back a little bit how violent and how sexual this movie was uh you know he's rolling around on the bed trying to get you know catwoman to lay in bed with him all of it all of it was just too too much let's talk about penguin because i think you had a lot of issues with it rightfully so what's your takeaway of the character and i guess danny devito's portrayal of it or what let's start with what do you think of Danny DeVito? When you think of Danny DeVito, is is the penguin the kind of person you think of or the kind of character you think of that he plays? Um, no, it's not the first character that I think for him. But, you know, I think he plays it very well. I think there's something about his personality that does have that sort of I mean, he has the comedic timing and he has the ability to be this sort of off kilter kind of guy. And certainly penguin <laughs> needs to have that quirkiness to him. The thing about it is I wish he played it 
a little bit more funny because that's the thing. Like with the Joker, the Riddler, you know, we have these characters that have this little, it's edgy humor, but it's not this like grotesque, like out of it behavior. And and I totally understand his origin story. And so I, I get it. Like, you know, he doesn't have any basis to be this edgy humor kind of guy. But I think for a movie that's going to be PG-13 and, and using characters that, again, I think now are very adult characters. Batman is a very adult character now, but it was very accessible to us as kids. You know, like these were still characters that were not scary. Catwoman wasn't scary or weird to me or anything. The Penguin wasn't even really. I mean, you know, he and the Joker existed a lot and the Riddler as well back with like the Adam West shows. So for me, I I wanted him to be a little bit more, I don't know, engaging and less disgusting. Well, I think that's a great point, though, because this is not your Burgess Meredith penguin at all. It is not recognizable. If you put the Adam West penguin, you know, played by Burgess Meredith, uh, to people who watch Rocky, that's, uh, you know, Mick, his trainer, and you put him next to Danny DeVito's penguin, they are not recognizable as the same character at all. I mean, right. there, even in that scene where he right before he bites the PR guy's nose, he mm-hmm. tries to stick like a little cigarette holder in his mouth and he spits it out because that that's a key look of with alone with the top hat and the monocle of that Burgess Meredith penguin. I think that's the penguin that a lot of us grew up with and had in our head. I, I used to watch the old Batman TV series on reruns and syndication all the time. And he didn't necessarily need to be the top hat wearing monocle wearing version, but I thought he could still have that element of, of comedy. I mean, the reason why the Joker works so well and the reason why Batman, the original was, was so much more successful for me than this one was because of the Joker's ability to be that just like edgy cutting humor we needed some of that. Like I, I thought that we had, like you said, there's, there was sexiness to it. There was confusion out of Batman, but we were lacking that character who was just kind of more zany crazy than like certifiable bite your nose off crazy, you know? Yeah. So by contrast, the TV show Gotham, uh, a much underestimated and not loved and watched enough series that ran for four five, six seasons on Fox, had a young penguin, a young Oswald Cobblepot. And he was played by Robin Robin Lord Taylor. But everyone should go out. If you like Batman, if you like the idea of the Batman story, not necessarily the character, but the world in which Batman lives and comes to power. And uh, it really is the story of James Gordon, who we know as the commissioner, when he was just a cop. And so Bruce Wayne is a young man, a, a teenager, dealing with the recent death of his parents. Catwoman, the Selena Kyle character, she's a young teenager teenage girl like a street orphan kind of character but there is a you know young penguin who's in like in his 20s and he's an odd man you know he's an outcast he walks with a limp he looks kind of different than everyone else he speaks kind of different than everyone else he is a man and his mother carol kane plays his mother and she's checked out she's kind of like serving tea to no one you know like one of those kinds of still thinks you know oswald is a little baby It, it, it is a very mentally odd character uh, a compelling the one of my favorite characters on the show bizarre but when he gets violent it's explosive 
it's uh, it's unpredictable it's dynamic when when it happens but otherwise he's quiet and just reserved and smart and cunning and calculating uh but the the anger and and all of the life trauma that he carries is just below the surface and there's a version of the Danny DeVito penguin that's like that, but they make him so overly grotesque and lean so heavy into the grotesqueness, you lose all the subtlety and nuance that would have been there had they taken that away. So and so this is all a long way of saying I like the idea of an off-kiltered penguin one that's not like a not like the burgess meredith penguin who was a very kind of debonair uh the gentleman's crook uh, not gross not overly violent just kind of like a like a fancy villain uh in in the 66 adam west batman go look at robin lord taylor's penguin for an off-kiltered violent man a norman bates type who's just waiting to explode because of all of the trauma he's suffered and has just swallowed but without being gross like Danny DeVito's penguin is. It's a, it's an interesting contrast. And it feels like kind of a waste of Danny DeVito. I mean, he is a comedic actor and I understand that he's, you know, a shorter stature, but you could have gotten anyone to play. I'm sure there was be a long line of people who could have lined up and played someone who is shorter and could have done that. And so for someone who is such a great comedian, I just think, you know, missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, some of the people who were uh, looked at to play Penguin, and actually Danny DeVito eventually takes the role because Jack Nicholson, who had great success as the Joker in the first Batman movie, recommended him, told him he made a ton of cash. And so Burton obviously was more than happy to go with the Danny DeVito as Penguin. But other people that they looked at you know, included Dustin Hoffman. He was actually a first choice of Burton's to play, but actually turned the role down. Marlon Brando, John Candy, Bob Hoskins, which I always thought was an interesting candidate. Bob Hoskins really had come to fame with Who Framed Roger Rabbit a few years before this in 86 or 87. He's kind of an interesting choice if you put him in some Penguin makeup. But there's all sorts of people here. Dean Martin, Dudley Moore, Alan Rickman, John Goodman, Phil Collins, Christopher Lee. Joe Pesci, I mean, just crazy, just crazy choices. And Christopher Lloyd, which is very strange because Christopher Lloyd, I think, is actually a pretty tall guy, a tall, lanky guy. So that would have been an interesting choice for Penguin from a Dane DeVito. Maybe as different a choice as you could make. Fascinating that that's like the same casting lineup that was brought in to play the uh, Joe Pesci role for Home Alone. Like that was the same lineup you said. It was like Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins and like it was all the same people. They were just like the standard guys at that point. <laughs> you bring them in to walk right. it through. I, but you think about Joe Pesci in any of his, you know, gangster Joe roles. Joe Pesci could have done this. Like he would have actually been good as the Penguin, I think. If, if coming off of 1990 Home Alone, Wet Bandit, uh, Joe Pesci uh, play, this. playing this Penguin. I see it. I, I could see. I could see that version of it for yeah. sure. Me too. I'm sure Danny DeVito probably was considered as a wet bandit role. You know, if I, I went feel back like and I, he could have been a good match. Yeah, I, you know, if I went back and looked at the the list of characters, you know, proposed for that role, I'm sure Danny DeVito's name appears on that list as well. If we could get the secret diary of the casting agent, it would at least be in there. I think the only other person we really need to talk about because it's he, I think you always have to talk about him is Christopher Walken as Max Shrek. Did you remember Christopher Walken was in this before he appears on screen? Probably not. No. I mean, the second he started talking, I was like, oh, okay, but probably not because it was too small of a role in my mind for what Christopher Walken 
typically plays. Like he's usually like the end all be all, which I know it seems like, come on now. He was like the big baddie. But yeah, but but there was too many other things going on that I would have felt like this isn't where he would play out here. Why do we have Christopher Walken in this role is actually pretty interesting. So Billy D. Williams, who is in the first Batman, is teased. He's he's introduced as Harvey Dent, but never gets the Harvey Dent becomes Two-Face arc. That was going to be something pitched in Batman 2 in the original idea for the script. By the way, the original idea for the script has uh, Catwoman and Penguin hunting treasure underneath the bat cave or underneath the underneath wayne manor Hmm. uh that's it's a it's a heist movie that's particularly funny because the idea of them being underground in water in some sort of boat like the like the duck is like so chester copperpot it's not even funny goonies Oh, 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 oh i was like no it's oswald cobblepot i know but it's chester copperpot goonies which is very funny because that would have come out right before yeah that though that is funny i didn't i didn't actually put that together yeah so burton was like no nah, i'm not making that movie like no 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 so the script actually went from sam ham who was who came up with that gem of an idea uh you know catwoman uh penguin heist movie burton comes on board he hires daniel waters who had written heathers a couple of years before i think heathers comes out in 89 or 90 he had written that movie he hires him to rewrite this movie he does right before the movie starts to shoot burton hires wesley strick to do a punch-up and a rewrite of the script but he's uncredited and the the big the big contribution from strick is that he gives penguin the master plan uh up until that point at that turn in the script and i think this movie went through like six versions or seven drafts of script uh it was strict who came up with the killed the firstborns of gotham otherwise there was no grand plan what the penguin was doing he was just kind of being the penguin with no real arc uh it was it was the strict final rewrite uh the uncredited rewrite that actually gives the penguin uh the the master plan of of trying to kill uh, all the firstborn sons of Gotham. So Billy D. Williams opts out of the film. So he he's not he doesn't want to be Harvey Dent becoming Two Face in Batman the sequel. They write this character of Max Shrek to fill the void that a Harvey Dent Two Face um, would have filled. It, Max Shrek is not a DC character. He was created a DC Comics character. He was created solely for Batman Returns, though David Bowie was the original choice to play Max Shrek. That seems bizarre. Well, because David Bowie campaigned hard for himself to play Joker in the first movie, and that role went to Jack Nicholson. But that makes more sense. I mean, there's nothing about Shrek that seems like that, have that sort of side to him that's got that, like I said, like that quirky, zany, whatever. Like, he doesn't have that, you know? Like, that's not who that character plays out to be. So you could see it as the Joker, but mm, Bowie, no, he's not playing corporate guy. Who's believing that? Fair, fair. I, I mean, I think it probably would have looked differently. I have to imagine Christopher Walken makes every role a little bit himself just because he has such a pe- peculiar and particular delivery style. Uh, I imagine the way it comes out has to look differently than how it is on the page. But anyway, it was never meant to be because David Bowie goes and declines this role. He goes and uh, become he, uh, he goes and joins David Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me. And that suits him. <laughs> yes. 
that, I mean, yes, you hear you hear David Bowie in Twin Peaks and you're like, yes, of course, that all makes a lot of sense. Burton actually was a little scared to hire Walken because he was scared of him. The uh, casting director, Marion Doherty, uh, she gave a quote a long time ago saying uh, Walken just scared the hell out of him, essentially. <laughs> like just because of his intensity and stuff. Uh, I yeah. love Christopher Falcon. I think I think he is such an oddball, but really defines every role. Every Christopher Walken role, I think, is memorable because I think Christopher Walken is just a memorable person. They had him on Saturday Night Live reading like a children's book. I think it might even be, be the night before Christmas. Yeah. Twas the night before Christmas. So funny because that serious, intense voice. <laughs> Very funny. What is this? Uh, what is this? Uh, what is this? <laughs> so, uh, what, what did, he, did he used to do the Intercontinental on Saturday Night Live? Was yeah? Is that was that his uh, recurring bit that he would do? Yeah. No, not Intercontinental. Just the Continental, right? I don't think Intercontinental. That's our airport. Yeah, it was the Continental. The Continental I, I used to crack me up. I, I used to oh, watch I it. Loved it. Of, yeah, when people are trying to back out, and he's like, no, no, no. No, no, no. He, he's a little bit of Pepe Le Pew. You know, Christopher Walken always has a little bit of Pepe Le Pew in him and very much in the Continental. You know, it's one of those things that it feels almost like it was created just for Christopher Walken. So it's kind of wild to think that it was like a Davy Bo- a David, a Davy Bowie fucking like it's like he's making knives that he uh David Bowie like written role and that Christopher Walken ended up just kind of working into be- it. Bowie. What would you have liked to have seen that would have made this more like a Christmas movie? If you if you could change one or two aspects, either plot or script or character, what would you have done that could have turned this from not a Christmas movie into a Christmas movie? I think probably something about the penguin and his actual goal if it had something to do with sort of ruining Christmas for Gotham City in some way, whether it's that, you know, he's going to steal all the, all the contents of the stores, like like Catwoman, you know, exploding the store. If you had the villains, basically, if their goal was to take away joy from Gotham, I think that that could have worked in a really grinchy kind of sense. Batman probably could have done a lot of different things that could have brought christmas in you know maybe try to do something more with catwoman like you said more to try to almost have like a like an ebenezer scrooge kind of thing with her where it's like you know walking her through like if you go this path this could happen like you could probably do more there but honestly i think the whole stick to the grinch idea stick to that these two are joyless and they want to steal joy from others and you probably could have gotten there a lot better. One of the things I noticed when this movie started was it, this looked like a different kind of Gotham than we saw in the first Batman movie, if you had watched mm. it recently. Yeah. Uh, really tall building. It looked like really big sets that you could walk around in. This movie took up over 50% of all of Warner Brothers' available studio and lot space Wow! with Gotham sets. That's how big and expansive they all were, all of the different set pieces that they built. You know, one highlight of the film for me that I actually like super got into was the penguins i really loved them and the whole idea that there was like trained penguins i mean when they had those little those little weapons on their back those the little backpacks mm-hmm. oh my god i was like look at him walk look at him. Like, i love that and i think they did a really good job of actually mixing in the trained penguins the cgi penguins and then 
The people in the penguin costumes were a little freaky deaky there, but I liked that they kind of used a variety of them because I think that helped sell this idea better than I really would have disliked it if they just stuck with the CGI. Um, But the trained penguins, oh my God, they won my heart. Penguins are among my favorite animals. I am a big penguin guy. I only like to go to zoos that have penguins because I like to just stare at penguins for a long time. I have been known to stream videos from around the world of zoos that have penguins. I had read that they trained those penguins with like the harnesses on their back. Like the the penguins were actually like, they were like professional hardworking penguins that had been like trained with like the harness. That's amazing. I know. (laughs) That's what I was saying. Like, I mean, when you see that they're actually wearing those little backpacks, there's something about that. I mean, we talked about practical effects in other movies, but for me, when you have a live real penguin wearing a tiny backpack, I am on board. They flew those penguins in from England uh it well, was of course <laughs> it was um it was a combination of the emperor penguins or i think they're king penguins and i think there are some emperor penguins too they were flown on a special refrigerated plane so that they were nice and comfy they had their own refrigerated trailer they had their own swimming pool on set they ate fresh fish i think it's a half ton of fresh fish every day right from the dock and the set was kept at 35 degrees around the entire shoot because of the penguins. So like the humans had to deal with the cold temperatures on set so that the penguins could live in the best vacation ever. <laughs> I think for Danny DeVito, that would actually probably be pretty comfortable in terms of like all those layers of coats and all the makeup and everything. I think you do better when it's chilly. They had their uh, they had an around the clock body card. But this is my favorite part of this fact. Many of the birds must have clearly enjoyed their experience because following their stint in Hollywood, most of them had made it and produced eggs, which is a sure sign of a contented penguin. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. They have, like little penguin families that like started with this. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. They must have like little descendants. We should track those down and steal them. I have, oh. <laughs> a, I have a large bathtub. I will make it very comfortable for a penguin you can to come probably, with me. You have to take two because they mate for life. So don't, don't be weird. You can't just take the Obviously, one. Obviously, I'm taking two. <laughs> Lord, you think I'm an animal? I hope not. When they have the penguin pallbearers at the end of the movie. I, see, okay, but that was where the guys were actually in suits. But when they first came out, there was like a, like a murmuring in my house of like, are those people dressed? Up. Like that was like wait 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 <laughs> like it was like, confusing yeah so they did a really good job because they had they had uh, some CGI penguins for numbers they like you said they had but they also had robotic uh, penguins which was a first also and using them all combined all the different ones like all integrated together I think I think worked really seamlessly now Tom who is uh, a budding marine biologist and uh, a big pet guy a big animal guy said why are there so many different kinds of species of penguins seemingly all living together why are they living Living like uh, hobos under in an abandoned zoo in Gotham. Why has no one helped them? All good points, Tom. But <laughs> who cares? I love penguins. So there you go. <laughs> that was my answer. Did you know that they went through 60 different cat suits during the six month shoot and it cost a thousand dollars a piece? So it was $60,000 for Michelle Pfeiffer's cat suits that she went through. Wow, that's insane. That's insane. Do not like, actually. (laughs) I think that's a silly waste of money. Did you realize that the final shot cost was $250,000? I did not. I did not know that. 
Did you know that in this movie opened, it made $47.7 million in its first three days, which happened to be a record at that time? Wow. Yeah. This movie actually went on to make $266.8 million on an $80 million budget. So it was a huge hit. It's a movie, again, in t- over time, no one really ever talks about. The, this is not Burton prefers his first movie. Michael Keaton's on record as saying that this is the one that he likes better. But Burton likes his first Batman better. And people, when they talk about Batman, never seem to talk about this one. But at the time, big hit. Big, big hit. You know, if it took 60 cat suits, it only took three bat suits it's because he had a it's because he had a fly <laughs> right she probably ripped through those suits just trying to get to the bathroom yeah yeah i, I agree with you i i think she was probably like yeah take it off me <laughs> this movie oddly did not open around christmas time i i feel like you and i have gotten into a, a rhythm here where most of the christmas movies we're watching or the movies on this christmas podcast we're watching open mm-hmm. around christmas time this movie opened on june 19th in 1992 this was a summer blockbuster set in the winter well but it feels very very popcorn movie summer blockbuster yes oh for mm-hmm. sure for definitely sure. has that that whole thing penguins underground lair filled with five hundred thousand gallons of water and, and in a simulated ice flow island that's kind of amazing right yeah i love that i love practical sets i, I it just feels different I, penguin as gross as he is when he's in his rubber ducky uh which how has that never been a roller coaster ride at six flags right because they have all of the batman rides at six flags yeah. or at universal how has there never been a penguins runaway ducky coaster Ooh. that fi- that final scene alone where he's making his getaway in the rubber ducky i was watching i was like this is a roller coaster ride begging to be made to be made it would be so much fun that would be so much fun yeah yeah, it would. <laughs> uh, how about this? Danny DeVito refused to have a body double. During the uh, vegetable throwing scene. I love that line because that's where he says, why is there always someone who brings eggs and, f- and rotten fruit uh, to a speech? <laughs> that's great. Uh, one, of the things I loved, one of the things I really liked about the Penguin, I liked all of the gag umbrellas that he had. And he never picked the right one out of the case. I, always, I thought that was really funny. See, but then that's why it works, right? Quirky humor worked for him and he needed to do more. Max Shrek for those eager eared uh, or eager eyed eared listeners and viewers uh, would catch that Max Shrek is actually the name of the actor from the movie, uh, the German vampire movie Nosferatu. The guy who plays Nosferatu, the 1922 movie, was an actor named Max Shrek. So a little homage. Marlon Wayans was to be cast as Robin and introduced in this movie, which... A African-American man playing Robin, something that's still not been done in any of the movies in 1992 would have been historic. It would have been a giant leap forward for people of color on the screen. Not something that we get to see even still today, not nearly enough, especially in superhero movies. It would have been groundbreaking, but Burton objected to the introduction of Robin in this movie. didn't think it really fit. So he was cut. His part was cut, but he had progressed so far in the production that he had actually shown up for costume fittings. So much so that Kenner, when it released its Batman Returns toy line, released a Robin, uh, a Robin action figure, even though Robin doesn't appear in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> because it was going to be Marlon Wayne's as Robin in the movie. Kind of crazy. Really funny. Yeah. So Mike, I have to ask you if you were involved in this, this portion 
of my fast facts, fans went on a promotional poster stealing spree. <laughs> Were you involved? Uh, just taking penguin fo- uh, the penguin photos down, not the Michelle Pfeiffer ones that those other rapscallions were stealing. Oh, I'm so sure that sounds right. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to leave you for- with one last fast fact. There was going to be a standalone Catwoman movie. That the the final scene in the movie is Catwoman raising her head in the bottom of the screen as the bat signal uh, flies, revealing to the audience that she lived, that she didn't die. You know, one of her live, one of I guess she had she six had lives left. Yeah, uh, left after she kills Max Shrek uh, again in a horrifically violent scene. And by the way, we didn't need to see his electrocuted corpse. That was unnecessary. <laughs> PG thirteen movie that was added in there because they wanted to do a standalone. Catwoman movie, which was originally supposed to be released in 1996. It stalled for so long, it never got made. Michelle Pfeiffer turns down appearing in Batman Forever in, because she was going to have her own spinoff. Burton was going to come back and direct. Like, they were going to get the band back together. Daniel Waters was going to return to write the script again. But then, in the end of the day, it just kind of sat in development. It never went anywhere. Michelle Pfeiffer began having kids. She began having a family. They uh, replaced Pfeiffer at one point. It was going to be played by Ashley Judd in the standalone Catwoman movie. And it just mm. kind of sat and sat and sat and never got made. Burton falls off. He goes He goes on with his career. He abandons the project. The movie ends up becoming the horrible uh, 2004 Catwoman standalone movie starring Halle Berry, which looks nothing like from any of the script treatments that I had read about the two movies other than it just being a Catwoman standalone movie nothing else in common but uh yeah the movie that could have been I would have been very down for another Tim Burton Batman but featuring you know starring Pfeiffer as the lead that would have been exciting I think she could have done a fantastic job it it would have been it would have been I mean the upside is Michael Keane is allegedly supposed to reprise his role as Batman in the Flash standalone movie which is going to be part of the DC extended universe that's the same universe that Batman versus Superman and Justice League and Aquaman all of those movies isn't that wild yeah I I agree I mean I'm I'm all for it and my favorite Batman so they're supposed to be taking on I think the Flashpoint comic book arc in that movie which would explain multiple batmans because that's when the flash starts screwing around with the timelines well we're up to that point of the episode where we're gonna talk about our jingle bell ratings but while you're thinking about it can i play you a clip from next week's movie and see if you can yes, guess you it? Can. yes i think you're gonna get this one it's a little obvious uh-uh. I'm dreaming of a white <laughs> Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Those aren't record pops or scratches. Those are bombs They're exploding the in the background. Oh, my. Glisten and children listen to hear Sleigh bells in the snow. In the snow. (laughs) 
Um, I am going to go with White Christmas, Mike. You got it in one. You All got right. it. Next week, we're going to be covering the Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney Christmas classic, 1954's White Christmas. I'm super excited about that. I'm ready for a classic. Yeah, if you guys are listening along, it's actually available on Netflix. So if you want to go watch it and get prepared to have uh, join in the discussion with us, you go uh, check it for free on Netflix right now. Please do. All right, Jingle Bell Ratings. Okay, so I am going to give this one a six. And I give this one a six because Christmas really has very little to do with this movie. I I heard the devil's advocate argument that it's the anti-Christmas movie. And I understand that. But if you're an anti-Christmas movie, you're by definition not a Christmas movie. So I am going with not a Christmas movie for me. And I get it. If you're one of those people who, you know, likes to watch sort of like outside the mainstream during the holidays, totally cool. Totally get it. And there's going to be more I know on our list that's going to fit under this. So I'm giving it as high as a six because it's associated with the holidays. But as an overall Christmas movie, I give it a six. So you've given this the same score just for your records. You've given us the same score as you've given Bad Santa. Uh, you've also uh, scored Polar Express at a six, and and Happiest Season Hulu original Happiest Season. That at makes a six. me want to give it a lower score. <laughs> but I'm going to hear all your noise about. I mean, there were some things. There were there was the concept of you know the or it's, it was all visual. It was all visual. So it was all just like the Christmas tree, the you know things coming out of the presents. There was a part where they were Christmas shopping, and there was little little parts like that it was just very small very small but for the same reasons why i said things like happiest season because it could have been at a different time of year and it wouldn't have affected the movie that could have been a family reunion or something else so it's kind of for those own reasons and polar express has got different issues but i'm gonna stick with my six because i have my reasons i'm in the same ballpark as you I'm in the same ballpark as you. I'm looking at my scores, man. Where are you seated? I really did not like (laughs) Happiest Season. I mean, woof. Would you give it for Happiest Season? I gave Happiest Season a four. Well, that works, though, because, again, it could have been a different season. I gave Happiest Season a four. I gave Polar Express a seven. I gave Bad Santa a seven. Man, I'm I'm flirting with a 5.5 here. Well, I always reserve the right to change these scores because I've already done it twice. So (laughs) I'm going to give this a six also, but I actually may eventually rank this down lower because I don't because I I, it's it's too violent. It's too sexual. It's not about Christmas, Uh, despite my devil's advocate argument. I think there are a lot of visual clues uh, to it being Christmas. You have a couple of throwaway lines. You have Bruce saying, you know, um, you know, giving lip service to goodwill towards men at the end of the movie. You have a Max Shrek throwaway line out in front of the library where he says, uh, it's, you know, give the Constitution a rest. It's Christmas. You know, so yeah, you have you have the Christmas, the Rockefeller Center-esque Christmas tree lighting ceremony. So there are a lot of visual Christmas things happening here. But this is not a Christmas movie. This could have been anytime but i really really like this movie it's getting a better score than happiest season but (laughs) is my next lowest rank movie because i i didn't like happiest season as a movie and i did not like it as a christmas movie that's why it got such a bad score yeah it it really sucked eggs all around for me (laughs) uh this one i actually really really like as a movie 
I really like Keaton and DeVito and Pfeiffer and Walken a lot. I love Tim Burton a lot. So that's getting it up from the five, the bowels of the five zone yeah. into the into the six. That's same for me. Same for me. I and I have good memories of this one, which that is part of Christmas adjacent is that idea of having a good memory and associating with good things for me. And I I have good memories of this, and so that that helps it. That helps it along. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to week 13 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. We've been discussing Batman Returns next week for week 14. We are discussing 1954's White Christmas, a movie that may or may not actually be about Christmas. I'm excited about that. I've never seen it, so I'm jazzed. It's there in the title. It should be about Christmas. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a discussion. I hope you guys come back and join us and talk to us next week. Caroline, do you have any final words before we wrap this puppy up? well said guys thanks so much for listening please remember to rate review and subscribe to the 52 weeks of christmas podcast on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and remember mistletoe is deadly but a kiss can be deadlier if you mean it thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production pod clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.